Hi guys, Paul from the Innovation Community here. Today I'm with Anna Kostikova, who's the Director of Analytics and Bioinformatics at Novartis. Anna's data science experience at Booking.com and Heineken has culminated in a passion for pushing organizations to the next level of data-driven actionable insights. Great to have you with us. Hi, Paul. Really nice being here. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Likewise. Tell us a bit more about yourself in a few words. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so currently, just as Paul said, I'm leading the data science team at Novartis. Prior to that, I've worked at Heineken and then at Booking.com. But even if I roll a little bit backwards, then my actual background is more in biology. And effectively, I did my PhD in computational biology and bioinformatics. And then at some point, I decided to drift away from you know purely academic type of career and uh, join industry. And actually, my switch from academia industry has happened right at the moment when data science as a career path, let's say, career trajectory, became available on the market. And it's something that got me extremely excited, interested. And I guess we're going to talk a little bit more later about this, uh, how I kind of ended up being a data scientist. But that's how, you know, I entered. So essentially, I'm coming from a very much non uh, how to say, uh, computer science, non-IT background. So my background is really in biology. So where did your data career start? Yeah, so that's a great question. So as I mentioned earlier, I did my PhD in computational biology and bioinformatics. And as you can imagine, because it's computational biology and bioinformatics, it's already on its own a pretty data analysis heavy field. And uh, what usually does it, this kind of you know, program or PhD means is that you're actually dealing with a lot of different types of data. Usually it's biological data, molecular, genetics, DNA, and you need to analyze it in a very you know, sophisticated fashion to better understand biology, to better understand medical things, and so on. So that was my PhD. And uh, then I also transitioned after PhD into postdoc position, which, which I was doing pretty much the same. So analyzing different types of what we call next generation sequencing data, so molecular data. But at some point I felt that I wanted to, you know, really move away from pure academia and see what industry has to offer. And it was, you know, a bit of a difficult choice because, you know, when you are coming out of, you know, really academic, academia type of career, you're always wondering, you know, how I can be useful on the market, what could be my, you know, career step and stuff like that. And uh, I was, I started looking around, you know, what are the different job titles, advertisements. I had no idea about data science at that point. It was about 2012, I think. That was the year when I started looking for something outside of uh, pure, let's say, academia, life sciences, and so on. And at some point, uh, what like I crossed a couple of advertisements that with the title, you know, we are looking for a data scientist. And I read the description and I kind of immediately fall in love with that description because it was very similar to the type of job I was doing, you know, back in academia. So analyzing data, getting insights from the data, trying to, you know, find some interesting patterns and so on with lots of, you know, tools that I've been using at that time. So Python, R and so on, statistics, machine learning, but applied to very different types of data. So not biological, not molecular, 
nothing like that, but really something that is out there in industry. So I really like the description. And I started looking into, okay, how can I get into this field where I didn't have any experience, let's say any, you know, specifically data science, uh, you know, kind of focused experience. And the first thing I kind of, uh, I started reading, I started reading books, started reading articles. And at some point I started, I heard about Kaggle. Uh, and for those who may not know about this, Kaggle is an online platform where you can enter data science competitions and different companies, they post, you know, data sets and you can, you know, form teams and try to participate in this. And this is immediately kind of caught my attention because I wanted to try first to see, you know, if data science is exactly like what I'm passionate about in terms of data science. And so I joined a couple of those um, uh, Kaggle competitions as just by myself or as a team and I really loved the experience you know the experience that I got from those competitions was just amazing it was you know I really loved the flow I really uh, felt that you know dealing with all these you know different types of data oftentimes very unstructured ones was extremely exciting and I decided yeah then you know it really fits my character I really like it so then the next question was okay where do I find the position and whether I can get in uh, and I'm based in Europe and I did my PhD in Switzerland so that's where I was looking for a job at that time from and at that time there were very very few positions in Europe that were focused on data science so essentially there were maybe a three or four positions at that time one was in Zurich at Google another one at was at booking.com in Amsterdam and maybe one or two more in London. So, so yeah, I decided, okay, I'll give it a try. I'll apply to all what is there on the market. And I went through the rounds of interviews. Uh, and, you know, it was a very different experience, obviously, because, you know, before all of the jobs I was applying were mostly focused on academic type of jobs. So it's very different, you know, mindset, how you transitioning from, let's say, you know, this kind of life science academia type of environment to the industry and industry mm -hmm. types of interviews. And so that's kind of what brought me in. And my first job as a data scientist was at booking.com. And um, yeah, since then, I kind of started building my career there. What a, what a fantastic uh, journey that you, you've been on there. What are you up to in your current role? So currently, <clears throat> currently, like at some point I decided I really wanted to kind of, to, to bring the data science back to, you know, my more, let's say, biological and life sciences background. Because I think that what I see right now is that, you know, there is a lot of learning, there is a lot of knowledge that's been generated by tech companies in how we can use and leverage data science, machine learning and so on. But a lot of more, let's say, traditional companies like uh, like with more let's say traditional industries and especially pharma they are really in need of this expertise they are interested to learn from you know what's been there like how they can leverage this for their internal processes how they can build data science in the companies and you know build it as a big asset let's say so at some point i decided that i really want to kind of step away from the purely technology kind of companies and try to bring back what I've learned to the companies who are more traditional in nature. And uh, at some point I decided, okay, that, that kind of even transitioning back to life sciences would be awesome step because then you can, then I have like this kind of two sides of the expertise, both let's say life science biology plus the data science one. And so currently I'm leading a data science team at Novartis 
and it's a team of about 12 people and in this team we have two kind of sub teams one team is doing the data science mostly focusing on the very complex data sets molecular imaging clinical and so on and we are helping our let's say uh, uh, clinical teams who are developing novel drugs to understand you know what kind of target patient population they need to go after in order to maximize the benefit of the drug and the second part of the team they're dealing with what we call digital devices and digital endpoints and what it does it helps you to track much better the patient behavior uh, with all different types of like digital readouts for example variable watches or variable EEGs or brief detectors or something like that that allows you to really have a very comprehensive very complete picture about you know what it is like how the patient feels himself because a lot of the you know um, clinical phenomena that we're trying to describe are very qualitative in nature for example when you ask a patient like how much how how much good sleep did you have last night you know someone may tell you i had a little or i had a very nice sleep but this is very you know subjective and the same with i don't know how depressed you're feeling and this is a very you know a very important indicator about the patient uh, patient themselves so what we try to do we try what we call objectify subjective with these digital measures and we try to you know really see how we can understand this very complex phenomena such as cognition you know depression sleep and so on with the something that is very objective very measurable and something that we can down the road leverage for the data science benefit well wow, that's a that's a definitely a massive transition from some of the the previous companies you're working with but but as you said going back to your your roots as well oh. Having worked in such a diverse range of companies, what really interests you about working with data specifically? Yeah. So for me, what I really like, and that's what one of my like biggest passion is actually changing the stakeholder mi mindset and the attitude towards the data. Because what I see oftentimes like uh, high level stakeholders think about data science is something like a magic tool that you just hire a bunch of data scientists and then boom, you have, you know, a massive change in how your organization function. But really, it's not that simple, you know. In reality, if you want data science to be the real enabler in the company, you need to, like, start thinking different, start thinking different at multiple levels in your organization. Data scientists can, uh, like, add value, but only if there is someone on receiving end. So it means that all of the stakeholders, they start, need to start thinking in the data-driven fashion, which is a very difficult step to take, you know, because oftentimes, you know, people make decisions, but it's really that, you know, they really rely on the data. And making this step is actually a difficult one. That's part number one. The second very important bit is the, um, you know, also for data scientists to work eff effectively, efficiently, you need to have good data sets, right? And this is something that many companies don't realize until they already build data science team that in order to enable data scientists, they need to have a very much data-driven infrastructure to support data collection, data harmonization, you know, all sorts of data governance. And this takes way more effort and money than just simply building the data science team. So like thinking about data as an asset, that's what I really like to call it. This is another 
piece that I like and I really enjoy changing in the companies that, you know, that organization need to think differently about, you know, how they educate people in the organization, not just data scientists, but those who interact with data scientists and also how they think about data. So this is my favorite pieces because I think that's this kind of like fundamental change allows you to really become a data-driven company. And many tech, technological companies, if you talk like uh, Google, Facebook, Booking, or others, this is how the companies were built from the start. And often time for them making this step is much less of an issue than for the traditional companies which were, were on the market for years and years. So the whole infrastructure is just not built yet for, to support the data science at scale. So what they need to do is really to change all of that, you know, step by step. And this is what I really love doing, like engaging with stakeholders and trying to make this reality. Fantastic stuff. So just going back to the, 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 the different journeys you've had and the different organizations you've worked for, what are the main differences that you've seen between technology-based and non-tech companies mm -hmm. in terms of the way they approach data science? Yeah, so one of the key differences is definitely attitude to the data. So in the technological companies, because the nature of these companies is oftentimes, you know, you know, intrinsically linked to the, you know, basically like electronic type of data sets. So you kind of gathering all this data and you store this data by default. Uh, this is not really the, the, the case for most of the non-technological companies because there is no infrastructure to support, you know, uh, consistent data collection, data acquisition. There is usually very little data governance. So between the subparts of, of organization, you will see very different ways of managing, storing the data and so on. So just to give you some, you know, very concrete examples, like typically like if you go to the tech companies, then you would see an infrastructure based on Hadoop, Spark. So you have a very massive data lakes and so on and so on, which are, you know, very neatly organized. You have a lot of different, you know, ways to store the information. You have the uh, real-time data flows and so on. And this is, is just there. But then the second part is, but then for non-technology companies, a lot of that, you know, tails back into a lot more traditional systems, you know, like uh, SAP type of stuff, ARP, uh, Excel-based data storage and so on. So in order to leverage this data, the organization really need to start thinking about, okay, how do we organize it? So that's one massive difference, definitely. So the, the, the way, you know, non-technology companies usually were um, uh, how to say let's say reacting to the IT was that it's a support function it's a not profit it's not a profit generating part of the company right so what it practically means is that IT was always there to kind of enable other functions but not really uh, to, to really uh, you know be there at the strategic level or, to, or at the level of decision making. And this is what's something that, you know, for these non-technology companies is something very difficult to kind of comprehend and, you know, change because they need to stop this, you know, old fashioned, you know, let's say attitude where IT is just a support to IT being an enabler, data set being an asset and, you know, really uh, something that you know is centered as a strat uh, core of the strategy of the company so that's one big um, difference another one is just you know from organizational point of view 
in tech companies, what I saw oftentimes is happening that you have these very agile teams where you saw product owners or product directors, they work very closely with the data science and software teams and so on. So they kind of come together, you know, with like with the solution or, you know, some deliverables on the new products or new projects. For instance, the traditional companies, this is yet to happen. So uh, a lot of time the decision-making was done like from top to down. So basically there is some strategy, it's defined from the top and then it needs to be executed with a little input from, you know, from data, from level, uh, people who are like working there at, you know, at, 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 on the ground, let's say. So that's the second piece that, you know, that needs to, needs to change as well. That's what I saw like as a quite a big difference, let's say between industry, like traditional industries and uh, tech companies. Some some really great great uh, differences there, and actually going really deep into it as well, which is which is fantastic. Uh, how do the different companies also approach digital as well on a, on a more broad scale? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> so what I see now is that a lot of traditional companies right now they understand that they need to enter this digital and data field in order to stay competitive, because they realize that you know, by leveraging, you know, the massive, actually massive information that they, they have, they can improve on many, many operational parts of their business. And, you know, really uh, what, I, what I also like to say that can, they can really, you know, pro change profit margins actually to a much better levels. Uh, the difficulty for them is to learn how to do that, you know, how to really define what is the data science or digital strategy for the company? How do we start there? What are the first pieces that we need to put together? You know, how are we making sure that it's not only the strategy, but it's actual people management, that ha people change management that happens there? Because that's like, just again, to give you a very concrete example, uh, when we've been building and working with the team at Heineken, for example, one of the major bottlenecks for us to implement the data science models and let's say data science-based decision-making into like uh, on the field was changing the mindset of uh, people who would execute. And what it, what it practically means that if you're building a model that should help your, let's say your sales, sales force, to you know, make decisions about which potential partner to contact first, right? You need to convince them to really make use of the machine learning model that you've built in order to make a decision. And if you, they are not engaged with you, if they don't believe that it can help them, then this is you know, a very challenging position because then you have your beautiful models, but in reality, they never get used. So this is one thing like to, to bridge. So basically bringing the people change, change like in like really mindset, how they interact with data science, how they make use of that. And then the second part is also, again, like it's coming back to the previous question, actually, what are the differences between the technology and non-technology companies is in the way we do the experimentation. Because oftentimes if you go to, you know, Facebook, Google and other like large companies like that, for them, 
to make an online experiment on their customers, visitors, partners is pretty much straightforward because you have massive traffic. It's only about, you know, just showing a different versions of the system to them. There is when you come to the real, like very much physical businesses, and then next step is going to, let's say pharma, which I'm going to talk next, then it's a very physical business where you need to deal with the offline, offline locations, right? You need to deal with a lot of supply, logistics, uh, and so on, so on. So it's very physical business where experimenting means um, totally something else, right? You need to go to the shops or go to the outlets, change their things physically, and then try to see whether by changing this, which is like what's predicted by machine learning model, data science model, will make an improvement into whatever target metrics you're trying to improve, right? So, and this is difficult because you first don't have such a good controllable, you know, experiment setup, right? Because in web, you can always find your perfect populations on which you want to, you know, uh, show something or don't show something. Here, you always will be, you know, dealing with, you know, all the specifics that comes with like, you know, physical shops, physical supply chain stores and so on. When it comes to farmer, where what you want to be doing is actually experimenting, let's say, on the patient populations, it's even trickier, right? Because uh, you can imagine how much more, you know, regulatory approval, how much more steps and care we need to take in order to provide this kind of experimentation on the real patients. So, so you see, so the level of complexity on how easy you can validate your machine learning or data science driven, you know, decision making is also, you know, massively different between this kind of tech versus non-tech companies. Yeah, and moving towards uh, a big issue that members of the community really face, uh, how can people create a data science community within their own organizations? Yes, so I, I like thinking about this as, you know, um, so for me, like, I, I, I have to say that I've been lucky. So I always worked in organizations where, where the data science culture and the community was very strong. And it's something that, you know, makes me extremely passionate because I really love when people, like in data scientists, feel enabled. Uh, they feel ownership of this, you know, the tasks that they carry. You know, they feel that they can actually change the way decision making is made in the company so for me it's something that i always try to you know carry on with me and you know really in, um how to say i would say motivate other people to do so how the company can do that so, so first thing of course you need to give the mandate to data scientists and you need to say to, to speak to other stakeholders that you know now you have this you know uh, you have this community, data science community, which is your partner. They're there not to just, you know, support you, let's say, like you did with the IT. It's not like a request that you send to them, but they are an equal partner with, with whom you need to make the decision making together. Why I feel this is extremely important is because oftentimes uh, data scientists and data science community, they have a very strong, you know, well, uh, I would say like level of objectivity because, you know, unlike the stakeholder in situ, uh, 
they look at the data and they don't feel like, you know, particularly passionate of, of about specific solution. They just want to see which solution makes more sense given the data support that we have. And therefore, they provide this kind of objective guidelines. But taking these guidelines from the stakeholders is not an easy task, right? Because you have your preferred way of working. You've been there maybe for 20, 30 years, right? So you kind of know better and you have your gut feelings, you have your intuition. So listening to something that comes like this is not easy. And this is what organization needs to, to, to teach really, the, like um, organization members, is how to establish this bond between the data science community and the stakeholders so they learn how to work together as an equal partner rather than in this kind of fashion where it's like a, you know just a support function and some, or something very you know like very fancy but doesn't have real application in, in for the decision making so this is what uh what i i think is in, very crucial for uh, any company who want to establish a good data science community uh, fantastic stuff there. Thanks for thanks for sharing. So, uh, where do you think technology fits into this picture? Uh, what effects do you think it will have over the next few years? Yeah, so I think that you know, again, it's it's slightly different depending on the type of business we are talking about. So, for example, when we talk about technology companies, what I've seen, you know, most recently, like uh, happening the most is you know trying to understand how we can build like uh, well when you talk about streaming type of data right how we what kind of differences we see between you know applying machine learning models on the streaming data in the real time compared to training these models on the offline data that we've been accumulating because we've seen a lot of let's say discrepancy between the two um, the second part is bringing back what is called like human in the loop and you know like really making uh, data interpretable for decision making. That's another big thing I've seen, you know, happening more like, let's say, in the tech world or tech community. Because a lot of time when you try to speak to a stakeholder, you don't want just to say, I have this magical black box which gives you all the answers, but you really want to understand. And this is what's been, you know, a challenge for a lot of machine learning where you basically have been stuck with the, you know, uninterpretable uh, AI or whatever you call it. Then this is, if I would say, to summarize what's happening on the tech side, on more, let's say, other types of industries, uh, traditional ones, then what I think is really important is to think about how you digitalize a lot of your assets. Uh, sometimes I think, I think that even starting from scratch, uh, and what I mean by that is like really like introducing digital devices into your operational business, gathering the new information, waiting for about a year, and then starting on from this data is easier than trying to uh, convert all of your existing data assets into the modern infrastructure. I think that actually this, that's what I've seen a lot of companies trying to do, like, I mean, traditional ones, is that they have this kind of massive, very differently structured data that sits in all different subsystems, which are not really talking to each other and so on. And they spend years trying to figure out the best integration scenario and they still fail because it's, you know, it's a lot of money. It's a very difficult task. And unless it's your strategy, it's very hard to do. But what I've seen happening in, in the companies who are just starting, because for them it's so easy to immediately start from, you know, like, you know, just having the digital devices as their primary 
entry point for their like information flows, they immediately like, you know, have this kind of advantage. So my, what I think is going to happen is a lot of this non like traditional companies, they will realize that, you know, they they will kind of kind of basically stop trying to harmonize whatever they've collected, but rather focus on okay, if we start today as our ground zero, what kind of uh, how we can actually start capturing the data in much more efficient way, and this is what will enable them to actually down the road to really you know build all the data science um, uh, capabilities. And. You know, I'm really interested to find out what, what you would describe then as some of the major successes you've achieved over your career and some of the times that you actually implemented these these, these strategic thoughts that you, mm-hmm. you, you're showcasing today. Yeah. So for me, like some of the like some of the crucial things which I'm always kind of trying to push for is data capturing and storing of the data and you know like really valorizing on the data assets that been collected uh why i think it's a very hard thing to change uh because the actual benefit that you and you know let's say roi so return on investment that you bring into the company is delayed and it's oftentimes hard to prove and you know exactly calculate how much more money you're going to get once you have this data in-house so this is a very difficult sell if you try to go to this uh, like high level stakeholders or your executive suite and then try to say okay guys like we now need to spend two years collecting this data that's going to like cost us like this much of money but I can give you like an exact formula of, you know, how much ROI we're going to get from this data set. This is a hard sell. So, and this is some of the biggest struggles which I see in the companies that, you know, on one hand side, they're very eager and they are very pushy to go for data science and digital. But at the same time, you know, making this investment into data without knowing how much it will bring you at the end of the day is a difficult uh, play. So what I've been, you know, always striving for, and this is, for example, what I did at Booking uh, back at my time there, is like really trying to convince them that, you know, investing resources, and this is both like resources in terms of, you know, FTEs and infrastructure itself, but into storing specific sets of the data, even if we don't know yet how exactly we're going to use it, uh, this is a good thing to do and you know convincing them and trying to really push for it that was like part number one uh, the second part that you know I'm always struggling like try to uh, strive for is to really change the attitude of stakeholders in how they interact with data scientists and this means really trying to position data scientists as an equal partner as someone who can help them and really you know that together we will be able to do a lot more than if uh, what we would do like separately this is my second like uh kind of uh, important piece is what i'm striving to do brilliant so how would you describe your leadership style then you mentioned that that a lot of it is hard so how do you approach the the challenge and how do you engage and communicate Mm -hmm. with team members yeah, so for the team, teams, and this is what I, something that I learned as well all the time that I'm very much into what I, what I like call like uh, servant leadership. So I really believe that people who do the groundwork, they have the best knowledge 
on which decisions needs to be taken. And the leader for the team is just their voice, you know? You can, and the second piece that leader brings is, you know, the vision. So basically saying, okay, you know, it seems like this is where we want to go. It seems like this is a very interesting play. You kind of then discuss with your team members, but then you let your team to actually, you know, concretely figure out, okay, how we're doing this, you know, what will be, you know, our strategy, operational strategy in achieving this and so on. So really working together with the team and, you know, enabling them to make decisions. That's what I, I really feel is important. And the second piece is that I really like uh, giving giving people like the sensation of ownership and what i mean by that is that i don't like given like giving specific orders i think it's just ineffective and i also think that oftentimes the order uh, just made by one person is always suboptimal compared to what team can make as a decision or the person who really you know cares and works with the specific questions so i like the distributed ownership i like um, having a sense that uh, it's a team play and we as a team try to enable the change rather than me trying to push for a specific you know um, things so this is when it comes to me interacting with my so my own team let's say and then when it comes with like more like interaction with stakeholders then for me what is very crucial is that I really like and I actually really love helping other people's and helping them to see the value in added value in what we can provide to them. So I'm always thinking about them as my customers, my very like deep, dear customers, let's say, and where my like biggest passion is to really help them to make, you know, the decision-making easier, better, more sophisticated, more right, to really help them to understand something that otherwise they couldn't know or couldn't do. So, uh, so having this sensation that, you know, I really helped, I really enabled my stakeholders to do better is what I try to kind of go for and really um, make happen in the company. So, so you see, so it really depends like who we're talking to with teammates, you know, one particular attitude and with stakeholders slightly else, something else. Great, uh, different approaches there. Where do you currently see the biggest opportunity for improvement in your organization? So, so yes, yeah, so I think that, you know, just, just to continue on the same lines, you know, seeing data as an asset, figuring out that sometimes the actual value from data in digital is a, is a long-term play. So it's not something that you will see immediately, but in a year or two years from the time you've invested. Uh, and you need to start in like you know making sure that organization thinks about this this way this is very very important the second part is obviously building the data science community in the company establishing the right conversation line with stakeholders making them understand what is the added value so educating them is really like the crucial piece you know so that they understand what does what does it really mean to work with a data scientist or data science and in a long-term strategy i think that you know really um helping the company to transition into like this kind of the uh, 
so let's say helping Novartis, for example, become to become like a data-driven company is something that's my ultimate goal. I really think that biology, life sciences, pharma, biotech, health in general has so much to learn and there is so much, you know, to be done in terms of integrating the data and digital mindset into this industry that we are just, you know, in the beginning of this wave. In the next, you know, 10 or 20 years will be, you know, this massive transition where all of this industry will become, you know, so much more data enabled, digital enabled compared to how it's been done before that, you know, we just seeing like the rise of the wave right now. And I'm a massive believer supporter of this. I think that, you know, we have like things to change there and improve so that's why i'm uh, that's why i'm doing this so very excited sounds like an exciting time what do you think was the biggest mistake you made during your career so so yeah so first i naively thought that uh you know a lot of stakeholders will know the question that they want to ask from the data it's not the case. You really need to work with your stakeholder together to even shape the research or, you know, business question that they want to address. Oftentimes, uh, people on the other side, they just, just as, you know, naive or agnostic to, you know, how it can help or what you can ask from the data is, you know, as you've been when, you know, like, is, you know, some, it can, it can be quite naive. So helping them together, like sitting them to, uh, together with them and figuring out what we can get from the data, what kind of questions, what kind of business solutions, what kind of impact is something that, you know, data scientists need to do, like, as they are, like, maybe 50% of their time, I would say. Because oftentimes I see that, you know, data scientists at like earlier stages of the career, they get very excited about the data and the modeling piece. And they completely forget about, you know, how this is going to be used, how this is going to be useful for the business, where will be the eventual value for, you know, the processes that we're trying to optimize. And they really speak to the stakeholders. So when the solution is out there, then it's just been not used or the stakeholder has very hard time understanding why it's been even developed. So this is the thing. So I always start, I always try to start from the conversation, from a lot of brainstorming together now with like stakeholders, rather than, you know, taking a deep dive into the data, because that's what data scientists love doing. And myself, if I were just given a choice, I love just, you know, like kind of swimming in the data, you know, looking at it, analyzing it. But eventually, unless you have a crystal clear path to how you're going to valorize this, it's um, extremely challenging at the end. So this is something that I've learned over the time. So appreciation of this process. Makes sense. And a, and a big question as well, uh, probably very relevant for your current role is how has COVID-19 really affected your, the, the way that you approach the company and also Novartis on a, on a wider scale? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that for Novartis, even though that we are very physical business, we've been extremely resilient, you know, to the change. And we have a very big plus, uh, you know, sign here. So first of all, the company 
and the teams, they've been, you know, even though it's been very challenging to work, you know, to change this whole, you know, the way we've been working with, uh, like, with, like, you know, this remote situation, it's been challenging, especially in the beginning where you had to adjust the way you communicate with the team and so on and so on. It's, it's not been easy. But then at some point, I think maybe two years down the road after COVID situation has started with all the lockdowns, people adjusted and they found their way to work with this, you know, fully remote environment. And they learned how to deal with, you know, just being all the time on the screens, let's say, and having, uh, needing to run the meetings in a fully virtual way. Of course, what is important to understand that because for Navartis, for example, a lot of people also work uh, in the labs. So they need to be there. Otherwise, they cannot do their job. So what we've been trying to do is that for all of the associates who are um, working on the computer or like on the, let's say, desks, they, you know, step, uh, step to work from home more than those who are lab associates who just simply cannot, cannot do their job without, you know, access to the lab facilities. That's part number one. The second one, what I also felt is that um, actually working remotely uh, empowered many of the people who were, let's say, more silent, let's say, when it was, you know, just uh, coming to the moment to speak up or express their opinion or pose questions, they become a lot more, uh, you know, I have to say present and in a very, very good way, because now when, you know, you have this um, very large online meetings, you don't have to, you know, just, you know, raise your hand, you know, stand up in front of the massive audience. All you need to do is to place your question in the, you know, question box or you, you raise your electronic hand and so on. So it really enabled people who were more shy, in participations to, to equalize it, let's say, to make it a lot more democratic so everybody can pretty much equal chance to speak now. This is what I see. So that's a very, very good thing. Another piece is that we have like a very distributed team. So part of our team is in Basel, part in Cambridge, part in, part in Eastern Hanover, some people even in Shanghai. So it's, you know, it's uh, in all over the globe. So before we felt that, you know, uh, the geographical segregation were quite prominent. So people who were sitting in the same office, they tend to work together more, they tend to communicate more with each other and so on. But now everybody works from home, so essentially I feel a lot less distant to people on across Atlantics, for example, than it used to be. So this kind of geographical separation or isolation has reduced a lot. So you kind of feel you're kind of the same distance to, let's say, people who sit in the village next to you as you feel to people sitting in Boston, for example, or in Shanghai. So this is on the positive side. Maybe on a slightly, let's say, less uh, exciting part is that this is just for me as uh, someone who frequently needs to run meetings, not seeing people physically makes it much harder to guess what they think, how they feel, whether they're paying attention, what their thoughts, because when you present in front of the audience and you see this audience, you pay a lot of attention to the subtle cues, you know, like, you know, nonverbal cues, right? And now you just don't see it. You just speak to the screen like I'm doing right now. So it's very difficult to understand uh, this, what is the, you know, audience thinking, feeling, and so on. So this, 
for the speakers, I think it became a lot more challenging. So this is like um, what I think is, you know, we still need to figure out how to improve. And it's always a continuous journey, right? You can always learn That's from right, yeah. other organizations. What's your top working from home tip? So for me, what I learned, what helps me to concentrate is that, you know, some of the meetings right now, when I just, when I don't need you know, access to the screen, I take my phone, my headset, and I just go out and I walk as I'm speaking. So this allows me to not just be in like uh, kind of the sedimentary position all the day through. Uh, it allows me to also kind of concentrate a lot better when I'm outside. I'm just listening to the person speaking and I'm not distracted by, you know, a new email arriving in my mailbox, for example, right? Um, and also just like this kind of physical activity, you know, just you know, helps you to, you know, really like release a certain hormones in your body. It's, you know, just you, you breathe differently and so on. So, you know, this is something that I learned from another colleague of mine who was doing the same. So just taking walks during the uh, conversations where you don't need the access to the laptop. I think this is really effective strategy, you know, just to not feel that you are having this kind of screen fatigue by the end of the day. Because oftentimes I have lots of meetings and if I'm just, and it used to be that between the meetings, I was walking between the buildings, you know, just taking a water and so on. But here now you can simply just go from a meeting to a meeting without even, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking off from your sitting place. So, so that's, that's, that's been very tiring. Uh, I noticed that I got very tired by like after seven hours of non like interruptive meetings like this. So I decided to, okay, I need to change something and, you know, using this practice really helped me, helped me a lot. And that's super interesting. So what does your routine look like? So, so yeah, I'm a working mom, so I have two kids. Uh, I have two and a half and five year old. So usually my morning starts with like making sure that they are prepared for their day. And so like, you know, just make them up, uh, washing, then, you know, cooking some, some breakfast for all of us and then ma making them ready uh, for the day. Uh, so then I usually bring my daughter to a school, the five-year-old and the two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old to the daycare. Then I come back uh, to home and like usually I start my like routine with like some some of the duties. So it could be like either a meetings or sometimes I still have chance to, you know, actually look at the data and analyzing the data or preparing some presentations or reading what, you know, some of the presentations that have been sent to me by my team members. And this is how I kind of get into the role. I always keep like a thing of like to-do list for myself for the day. And I always try to select like, like, one or two things that you know are very important and i want to be accomplished by the end of the day because then i by the end of the day i actually have the sensation that i have something achieved and really this helps me i really like having kind of the checkboxes filled and so on and so so i always try to build and keep a to-do list for myself which i'm kind of crossing the boxes over and i'm kind of continuously revising the list because i know that the best practice is to have like one or two goals per day which you clearly want to achieve and the rest you kind of deprioritize or you say okay you know um you know i can just you know, skip it if it's, if I don't have enough of time. And another thing that I also 
really like doing is that sometimes when I have hard time getting myself into the role, I have a list of small duties, which are, you know, like, uh, which, you know, I, uh, like will take a couple of minutes each, but doing these small duties kind of help me to get my brain into the work mood. And then I'm ready for like more challenging big task, for example. And this is how I get it in, uh, get it, get it, uh, into. And what's the best piece of advice you ever received? So for me, like some of the, some of the things which I constantly working on and I try to like, as I grow in my kind of, you know, as a, as an adult, as a professional, uh, I pay more and more attention to what I call empathy and emotional intelligence. So I really try, try to uh, first understand the people's feelings rather than immediately jump into, you know, like practicalities of the things or, you know, what is like the rational part of the thing. Because I think it's so, so much more important to understand why people get um, uh, get excited about certain things or get frustrated by certain things that, you know, if you can understand that, uh, then you can really help your team to grow. You can develop a lot better relationship with your stakeholders uh, and being genuine about this. So I always try to be very sincere when I'm uh, working with other people in terms of, you know, my appreciation of their feelings, you know, positive or negative ones. And this is what I've learned actually as an advice uh, because in my early 20s, I was struggling to do that. So I've been always a lot more, let's say, rational, very pragmatic, you know, first fo focused on, you know, like really okay, but, you know, uh, if the logic says this, you know, why do we even discuss in certain points? So, and I understood that eventually it leads you to a lot of challenges when you communicate to people, when you, tar to, when you try to really, you know, uh, keep the ball rolling, not by yourself, but as an organization. So, and uh, I started really paying attention to what other more senior leaders think about this and how they talk about this. And this is exactly the uh, piece of advice which I've heard on one of the post podcasts by the guy who was leading the... Um, I believe he was like the head of Pepsi Cola or something like that. So he said that one of the biggest enabler in his career and what he looks uh, looks for when he hires new people was that the person needs to be very empathic, very like emotionally intelligent, very sincere, and very, like very genuine about their intentions and the interests and you know passions and so on. So less eager ego in like you know very kind of you know egoistic sense and more towards like open you know towards the people towards understanding their needs and, and trying to genuinely help them so that's what i'm focusing on right now mm, that is a a, a a great piece for us i think um what are you curious about right now so, so for me, one of the biggest curiosities right now is that, you know, more I'm thinking about, you know, what is the future in terms of, you know, how we can better, like two pieces here. So the first one is that I'm very passionate about supporting uh, startups in entrepreneurship in the biotech and pharma industry, because I think that, you know, we've have a, we have a very, very good culture uh, in tech, you know, how we do the entrepreneurship. There is a massive opportunities. There are a lot of VC 
VCs, angel investment, angel financing, and all of that. So there is a lot of that going on. But when you think about young scientists or people who, you know, are coming from more like deep tech or STEM type of technologies, enabling them to start new businesses is something else. And this is what gets me extremely interested because I know that is I'm always working, like currently I'm working in this kind of deep tech industry, like very much, you know, very, you know, physical business where it's not enough just to know how to make an application for the web, right? You really, it entails a lot more physical products and a lot more costs. So how we can enable innovation and, you know, really empower the young scientists or young data scientists or tech people, like really go into this harder technology fields, like how we can enable innovation over there. That's not piece number one. I really uh, think that there's so much to do and uh, with the, you know, making, how to say, and I, I really think that now a lot of these hardcore technologies in pharma, life sciences, biotech, or, you know, even deep tech technologies, they become a lot more accessible to the entrepreneurs. So we will see in the next 20 years, the massive uh, wave of startups focusing on this kind of heavy technologies. That's part number one. That's where I'm trying to coach uh, companies. And uh, that's what I would be interested to do. The second piece is more on regulatory side, because as you probably know, when it comes to implementing innovation, data science or digital innovation in the uh, regulatory heavy fields, you, you always have these you know, organizations there that, that regulate how you operate. And oftentimes what I see as a very big blocker actually for innovation is that, you know, when we want to deliver a new solution, for example, a novel digital endpoint, and what I mean by that is a new device, a new machine learning model that can predict how patient behaves, right? Then our stakeholders have hard time buying in this because... For them, in order to push through a new drug or new therapeutics, new diagnostics, they need to speak to regulatory. And regulatory organizations, they are not yet there, so they wouldn't accept this novel thing, novel innovation, as a means to go forward, right? Because they, they need proofs, they need you know, a lot of uh, evidence that it works, stability and so on so eventually i see that one of the very important conversation that needs to happen and the change that needs to happen is within the regulatory or agencies they need to be the one helping stakeholder stakeholders in these entrepreneurs to enable this innovation to really help them to go faster to uh, experiment more just the same way technology companies were able to do when they've been trying to, you know, enable all the, all of the technological advances over there, because experimenting with the online scientists was much easier, so they could do that. They were little regulatory, uh, well, if known actually regulatory uh, part there. Here we we have to have it, and I completely appreciate it. But unless our regulatory agencies help us to do that and help to enable entrepreneurs to do it in a faster fashion and help like really support it, then we will have a hard time selling it to our stakeholders in between, you know, who will always look up to a regulatory and say, you know, unless regulatory approve it, we cannot really enable this innovation. So this is the second piece, which I'm kind of constantly thinking about, okay, how we can help our regulatory agencies to think more advanced about this, how we can, you know, make them see that, you know, in order 
for innovation to happen, they need to help to build this bridge between the entrepreneurs, stakeholders, clinical ones or other ones, you know, depending on the industry and them, uh, themselves, uh, you know, like regula regulation side. And who's currently your favorite thought leader or author? Whew, uh, yeah, I, I would say that I'm, I'm following a lot of things. I, I really like enjoy reading, you know, everything. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty, how to say, uh, like reading hundreds of whatever comes my way on LinkedIn or on Twitter, for example, or Medium. I read it and if I, I feel that, you know, the advice given there or what is, you know, resonates with me or, you know, makes me think differently i really appreciate it so i wouldn't say that there is a particular thought leader but i'm capturing information from all possible sources and kind of trying to see you know everybody you know like how people think about a specific you know think like in this field in that field mm. and so on and so so i would say that i'm just you know following a one particular person but i really try to follow a lot of people just to see you know where we stand who thinks what and last question, what advice would you give for aspiring leaders in data? Yeah, so I would say that my strategic advice is start with the data science community. Build a very good team, a strong team that feels empowered, feels that they have the rights and they have the um, ability, the ownership to drive the change, make them feel this way. This is very, very important. And the second period is educate your stakeholders, make it your like nearly like full-time job, speak to them, prove to them that you can deliver value, that you are here not to discard them not to replace them in many ways but to work with them and really help them and this is i think this kind of these two pieces are the key for the aspiring leaders if they want really to make a change in any company great advice from anna kostikova director of analytics and bioinformatics at novartis thanks for joining us thanks a lot paul it was great pleasure speaking to you